Welcome to Episcopal Priest Explains. I'm Kyle Martindale, your resident Episcopal priest, and today we're talking about liturgical vestments and other worship items in the Episcopal Church. On with me today will be Trevor Floyd, owner of Trevor Floyd & Company Liturgical Supplies, to work through it with us and take us beyond my brief explanation. It's Episcopal Priest Explains. I might not know much about much, but I'm here to talk about stuff. For when your friends ask you questions and you want to show off, the first five minutes likely aren't enough. Because I'm going to be wrong, and I'll ask someone smarter. So that first five minutes are more just like a starter. So you can stick around and hear from the experts, because there's more to know from Episcopal Priest Explains. It's Episcopal Priest Explains. Again, thank you for joining us today on Episcopal Priest Explains as we discuss liturgical vestments and other worship items in the Episcopal Church. We'll be joined shortly by Trevor Floyd, but first I'm going to try to share some of what I think I know about the subject and my experience with Trevor without getting too deep in the woods that Trevor and I can't find our way out together. Since the first item I mentioned, and also the most likely to take up our time, is liturgical vestments, that's where I'll begin. First, vestments were and can generally be understood as any of the clothing that is worn in worship. This means the term vestment can not only be applied to the various items worn by clergy, deacons, priests, and bishops, but also by anyone else involved in a worship service like choirs, acolytes, musicians, etc. The two main things I think I know about this subject are that many of the clothing items we know from worship originated from the Roman wear of the day in the early church through the Middle Ages, and that, in many cases, practical use was the first reason for items, with a theological and spiritual aspect added at at a later time, probably around the time the practical use began to fade away. We'll also be talking about other liturgical fixtures and items. For Trevor, this ranges from jewelry to stained glass, from tapestries to large crafted furnishings such as pulpits. I won't even begin in on these except to say that I think most of what I said about vestments probably applies here too, and that the practical uses likely led to more spiritually evolved reasoning over time. In terms of my relationship to Trevor, I met him probably eight years ago now when he visited the campus of my seminary, and one thing you may not know about Episcopal seminaries is sometimes there's pubs on campus, and I worked at one, so I got to know Trevor as he stayed on campus during his visits, and eventually I wasn't working there but sitting next to him uh, at the counter because I just like to talk about the stuff. So you've heard my rough explanation of the topic for the day. Now stick around as I bring in my guest, Trevor Floyd of Trevor Floyd and Company, to walk with us as we continue our journey together. Trevor, welcome to Episcopal Priest Explains, and thank you for joining me today as we discuss liturgical vestments and other items of worship. It's my pleasure. My, my absolute pleasure. Now that I've shared a little bit about who you are, and what vestments are, can you share a little more about yourself so people can get to know you a little better? 
Absolutely. Um, obviously, through going to school and college, I never thought I would own my own church supply design business. Right. Um, how I fell into the business, as you know, many people do with their careers. I was uh, living at Exeter Cathedral in the Cloister Gar. And part of being able to live in an apartment there, renting an apartment there, where you would do security for the cathedral. Mm. And I got to know many of the clergy, the cathedral people there, the deans, everyone. And one day a verger just said to me, you know, there's a uh, company in England that wants a representative to go to the United States. And I thought, "Mm, I've always wanted to go to the United States. Maybe I'll try that out. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up going to my first job. And they trained me and sent me over to the United States. And I've been with them 22 years, I think it was. And then I started, uh, and then I went to work for uh, a fr- good friend of mine who had a church supply business but got cancer, so couldn't travel. Oh, wow. So I ran his business for a while, but then he decided he wanted to move to Australia. And so I ended up then going to work for church publishing for a short time. Okay. And and after that, I started this business, my own business, Trevor Floyd and Company. Wow. So- and it was really an accident how I ended up doing this. You know, it was n- never an idea of doing it at first. You were just, you were at work one day and somebody said, hey, these people are looking for someone. Uh- <laughs> yeah. 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 It was as simple as that. And I thought, oh, I, I wouldn't mind going to the United States for a while. And I ended up meeting my wife here and, you know. As a stand England Bob's your uncle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, you know, here maybe the, uh, the similar thing would be just, and the rest they say is history, you know? Exactly. Just, exactly. exactly. Well, you know, I, I, I had next on to ask you about when you became first interested in working in this, but by the sound of it, it wasn't really something you ever thought of until it came up. Nope. I was when I was in England at uh, college and school, and uh, it was general. It was really a general building. It was you know I was going to do contract work, uh, mm-hmm. building, bricklaying. That that kind of interested me. The building side of things. I like carpentry. Um, so, but funnily enough, that held me in good stead for what I'm doing now, because we do do a lot of carpentry. We do do columbaria we do do metal work you know and so the design element of that interests me as much as the manufacturing side of it and i have an insight into the manufacturing side you know so you were able to carry what you were studying before you ever got interested in any of it uh into what you do now yeah because and, and and the weird the i say the weird thing the wonderful thing really about what i do it's so different every day is different um, this morning I did a, a, you know, I was working with someone for a sanctus bell. Uh, then I had a bishop call me about a cope and mitre. Then I had another bishop call me about a, a crozier stand. Uh, what else was it I did today? Um, and this is just in one day, you know. Right. And then. Um, and for those listening, if you don't know what those are, a, a cope is a cape, a mitre is a hat. And uh, one of my favorite, one of my. <laughs> bishops when i was growing up said uh it helped me remember it is said, it's called a mitre because it might or might not be a hat uh, <laughs> and then the crozier is the the staff that they carry around so just now you're caught up and we we'll continue listening with trevor 
Yeah, so, um, you know, it's so diverse. And then you'll get someone contact me about uh, clerical shirts and you'll be doing a clothing item next. Mm. It's, it's, it's just very diverse what we, what we do. And it's always interesting. You're, you're always being challenged, mm-hmm. you know. So that's, what I, that's really what drew me to this, to, to want to stay in this business, you know. You're, you're constantly creating things and it's not all the same day in and day out. Never the same. Never, ever the same. Thank you. You know, and, and we got, oh, and, and the other thing is when I had a church in Ireland contact me in Limerick and they want a dossel curtain. And so we're working with them on a dossel curtain. What, what is that? A dossel curtain is the curtain that hangs behind the altar. Okay. In a re- but where, if you don't have a rear doss, which is the wooden, uh, uh, furnishing behind that holds a reed table, those kind of things. Um, a dossel curtain is a curtain that hangs in the center normally, and then a cross is mounted in front of it, okay. and it's behind the altar there. So, And then there are, there's riddle curtains, which they don't need riddle curtains, but they're curtains that are angled out to the left and right. Okay, so the dossel is the one that's kind of flat to the center. wall there, right in the center. Yeah, and the riddles are the two side curtains, if you have those. Okay, That's very traditional. Thank you. Well, so, you know, I'm learning as much as my listeners are right now, because for for a lot of these, uh, you know, if you don't grow up with them and you don't work with them daily, like they, they may be terms you've never heard in your life. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I grew up in the church. I, you know, I, my father is a priest and I've been in the church since I was uh, a kid and, and, and now I'm a, an adult and a priest, but I don't don't know all these things. So it's fascinating to me. And so I know just kind of a, a very little history of different clothing. Uh, so we'll, we'll kind of gear towards clothing for a minute. Uh, clothing for use in church services, uh, also known as vestments. Uh, but what can you tell us about how and why people began to wear special clothes in Christian worship? Like, why don't we start with robes and we'll move on from there? Because I know robes are... Whether whether it's known as a, a high church service, which, uh, again, for those listening, that's like all the bells and whistles, or a lower church that kind of maybe just has the robes, but robes are kind of present through it all. So do you, mm. can you share mm. with us a little bit about the history? Well, most, most of the um, vestments, or actually let's stick with clothing that you see nowadays, they all derived from... Uh, you know, items that were basically worn during Roman times and have inv- have evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a cassock uh, uh, came from the word, a French word for uh, for coat, and that's why a lot of people, more so in the UK than over here, but that's why a lot of people uh, would uh, wear their cassock walking down the street and back. I remember right. when I lived in England, I always saw Father Coleridge walking around in his cassock because it was a coat in a, in a, in a basic way. It was a black coat. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's where some of these things come from. Um, you know, a cassock alb. I mean, that's a modern item nowadays. That's that, you know, that derived from, uh, and the only thing thought that I can give to that is it derived from people that didn't want to layer uh, alb over the top of a cassock and then have a changeable over the top of that and with all these layers. So somebody came up with the idea of basically a white cassock and call it a cassock alb. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So, yeah. So the cassock is the, the, the black piece that is really your, your base layer. Uh, yeah. you know, if you're, if you talk to speak of it in terms of other clothing items, it's, it's your base layer and, and you would stack things on top of that. Right. And, um, yeah. and maybe I, I always, when talking to people, you know, at least out loud wonder if, if it's, you know, it, it, the practicality of it is, well, it, it's hotter in different places and you don't always want to have those layers on. Right. right. Uh, and, you know, you look at the geography. Um, I mean, I think yeah. all of England is north of any northernmost point of the United States. And yeah. while it doesn't snow as much there, it gets chilly uh, and it's yeah. rainy and yeah. it's cool. And so you, layering is the deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's all kinds of nuances to a cassock as well. I mean, in my years of doing this, I've done sleeveless cassocks. Oh, wow. Uh, where somebody would maybe live in a warmer climate and would wear the surplus over the sleeveless cassock. And, of course, if you're wearing a black shirt, no one would not know that you had sleeves on your cassock. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's um, a white cassock for tropical climate. Some people will wear a white cassock. Mm -hmm. A tropical climate. I've even supplied cassock skirts, which is basically the skirt of a cassock, and it tied at the waist. Mm -hmm. And you'd wear your surplus over the top of that. No one would know that you really didn't have a full length cassock on. So you don't have the whole whole robe because you're wearing a so clergy shirt, whole, but then just exactly. the skirt. Exactly. You know, and then a famous person sorry. that wears a white cassock is the Pope. Uh, so, you know, if you look at a picture of the Pope, you'll get an idea of what, uh, what Trevor's talking about with a white cassock. Correct. Correct. And then, um, you know, and then you've got different styles of cassocks. You've got a full Soutan, you've got a Latin, you've got a uh, Roman Anglican, uh, you've got a St. Stephen's house, which is named after St. Stephen's house in England. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of nuances to, to in trims on a cassock and nowadays i mean there there is a gauntlet cuff or a cuff that you can get some people will have a cuff on the cassock and um where that came from i have no idea but over the years i've seen cigarettes tucked in there <laughs> I, i've seen sermon notes tucked in there yeah. You know, I've seen, I, I honestly, I mean, uh, I'll tell you now, people I, utilize those, those cuffs. I've got the cuffs and I've got them. So, so my cassock that my, my black robe, it's, uh, I think the two buttons at the top are, that's Roman, right? Mm. Uh, mm. so, uh, as he describes an Anglican cassock, that's, it's got what, 33 buttons down the center. No. No, right. actually, you're wrong. Oh. An Anglican cassock is the wrap over style, oh, okay. the one that buttons across. And a Roman cassock is the button down the front. Okay, style. so I had them switched. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So and so then, it's not always the case. Uh, uh, the 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 details of a cassock. You can get a single breasted Roman cassock with thirty nine buttons. You can get them with thirty six buttons. You can get them. You know, whatever. Some manufacturers nowadays don't care about the symbolism within a cassock. Okay. So you know. And to give you an example, a St. Stephen's House cassock, there's 39 buttons for the articles. There's seven on the cape for the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And, of course, with the 39 buttons, you're supposed to leave the button for the sacrament. You, 
Unbuttoned. For the, yeah, so the, yeah. these are the 39 articles or of faith. Articles, sorry, for the articles. Um, yeah. and, and so what he's saying is the, the tradition was to, to not button the one for, if you didn't believe in it, you wouldn't button it. Uh, yeah. So yeah. We, we clergy uh, always find a way of protesting whatever it is that we're going to do. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll make it known, even if it's quiet, as if we forgot a button. Um, but I have the cuffs on mine, and, and right. uh, I got it from you as well while I was in seminary. And yeah. uh, I, th- I use it for um, a, a, a kerchief on a hot day or yeah. – uh, yeah. One of the things during pandemic that's been great is I always know where my mask is. Mask, yeah. Um, yeah. Now the problem is if I get to a point where I have three or four in there and I've forgotten that I left <laughs> them in there. Um, but, uh, you know, these, as you said, a lot of these things, they carry the symbolism of where they came right. from, but then right. they also adapt for whatever use right. is needed at the time. And, right, and, right. And, and, and again, quickly back to the St. Stephen's house, there are five full pleats in the skirt, and those are significant to the wounds of Christ. Okay. So that that cassock per se has many much symbolism to it. Wow. Thank yeah. you. Um, is is there any other? I don't know a clothing item that you think we should know the history of before we move on uh, to the next next bit. I mean, honestly. With the internet nowadays, I, I used to have to go to reference books to learn a lot of this, but you can go online and say, where does a surplus come from? And there's a mirror mm-hmm. of conflicting information. But, I mean, it all really boils down to, uh, um, you know, where certain things derive from, what country it derived from. I mean, the influence in the Anglican Church is obviously the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And the Catholic Church's influence was from Rome. So... A lot of, like I say, the Roman, a changeable is is basically uh, a f- the foundation of a Roman robe many years ago. Mm-hmm. And you can get references for that. And I mean, you know, you say about the, why do people wear cassocks? Why do they wear uh, uh, certain items? Uh, well, why is a clergy person wearing a clerical shirt? It's a sign of office. It's like, mm-hmm. why does a policeman wear a uniform? Right. Why does a judge wear, you know, in, in England, why do they wear the wigs and the and the preaching bands or, you know, the barristers band, bands? And it's all signs of office, really, right. you know. And and so if you're going to go look those up, the the one that the example that Trevor just gave was surplus. That's S-U-R-P-L-I-C-E. And it goes over your cassock. So it's a white robe and. And then the chasuble uh, that that he mentioned as the base of the Roman robe, that is a, I've I've heard some, even priests call them the holy ponchos. They're the robes that go over the top of everything else. So uh, if you're wearing one of those, you're not wearing anything on the outside of it. It's, it's that we talked about layering. It's that top layer. Uh, And it's, it's used, it's, it's reserved for when the Eucharist or the the communion is is being shared. So right. just just to keep you up, because I know that uh, we're 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 into a territory that may be new for many of you. So want to keep keep you caught up as we go along. Uh, in the Episcopal Church, uh, 
one of the things is that that fascinates people, I think, in terms of what I've been asked about is why different people that are ordained wear different things. So uh, I, I think you answered much of this by just the it's a sign of the office. Um, but deacons and priests and bishops all wear different things. Uh, and they even wear them if, if they're wearing, for instance, a stole, which is kind of, again, to to give you the visual, it's the the scarf-looking thing that, that we always wear. Um, deacons, priests, uh, and bishops wear those differently. Uh, is it just a matter of office, or is there a, a spot you can point to where things shifted? I know that, uh, or has that been kind of always the case through the church? Well, th- things have obviously shifted throughout time i mean even today things shift i mean you you again you've got your introduction of the the uh, casacal mm-hmm. um then you look at a, a changeable and you say well that's the outer garment but not necessarily anymore some people will buy a plain changeable and have an overlay stole a wide overlay stole over the top of that and the decoration would be on that stole so things change uh, a, another example is a bishop is supposedly supposed to wear a nine inch wide tippet and a tippet is the black scarf mm-hmm. that you wear, you know, and, uh, but talk to, uh, bishops who are now, who are women, a nine inch tippet is so huge. And it, it, you know, in total, it's an 18 inch piece of fabric. Mm-hmm. So although officially a bishop should have a nine inch tippet, a lot of, female bishops now are getting the narrower tippets seven seven and a half inch because it looks more proportionate right for them so th- there's changes even with with uh, with genders and fashions you know yeah it, it's very you know it's 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 a very people say to me sometimes oh well uh, uh, you know doing this kind of thing there can't be much change but there are trends there are mm-hmm. fashions i mean the catholic church throw all of their traditional vestments with their um embroideries on them and they went to this more woven kind of designs personally not my taste but it was just a a, a thing during the 60s mm-hmm. and it went on for quite a while and um and uh, now we're getting more Episcopalians and Catholics wanting a fiddle-back changeable. There was a time when I worked for my previous employer, English employer, where uh, you you would never be asked in 20 years, I think, went without being asked for a fiddle-back changeable. And yet I've supplied many fiddle-back changeables in the last 20 years. So, you know, half of my career right. was... You know, there were certain things that just, oh, that's too traditional, like a maniple. Yeah. Very few people wear a maniple today. Which is something which, that goes around your wrist. Right, and derived from your from your towel. Mm-hmm. It was really, in, in the old days, a towel. And it just got caught up in the uh, in the liturgical seasons and became right. a item of its own, you know. And, you know, like strange little things like a mitre. We talked about a mitre earlier on. Uh, a mitre has the lappets, which are the two, the bands at the back. Mm-hmm. 
well, those bands weren't always there on mitres all along. They were at a side so that when bishops rode from a horse from you town know, to town, to they church, could just wear it. <laughs> they needed to tie the mitre on their heads, you right. know. So they were a tie initially, but they did it became decoration and moved to the back. And so that's where those silly things came from. You know, it's, yeah. it's silly things that get changed and you think, well, wow, did, is that the reason for those? Right. You, so, know? you know, so I think it's important to note that like all these things have practical reasons and then yeah. they develop these spiritual or, or symbolic reasons that, that mean you can't take them away anymore, you know, like, yeah. like the, yeah. the lappets on the, the, the miter, you know, it, it had yeah. a very real purpose and that was its only purpose was to tie the thing on. And then when they didn't need to do that anymore, they just said, well, let's make it bishops hats have always had these. So let's just move yeah. them out of the way and, and, and then, decorate them. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then that, yeah, now everything's decorated as much as possible as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. And and things like I said, I brought up manipul. Uh, manipuls aren't as fashionable uh, nowadays. And and even an item, and, and to me, a veil and a burse, uh, where you veil your your chat, you know, your chalice, and you've got your linens in your burse mm -hmm. on the altar. Even it, there are churches that won't even use those anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're just, oh no, we don't need a veil and burse. You know, and I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, are and it may be that they're not using a chalice the yeah. same way anymore. Maybe they're using individual cups. I don't know. You know, well, and it's uh, and especially with with COVID now, we've seen a lot of changes from uh, perhaps in towards cups. I don't know, but not in mm. not in our place. I, you know, I know yeah. that a lot of our uh, a lot of our bursts uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily match our frontal so it doesn't necessarily match right. the the item the the altar hang or frontal or however you want to call it that's the piece that you see when you look at the altar it's the the big fabric decorative fabric and and sometimes we don't change that as often as we change the other stuff and so we right. use kind of all season and then the stuff on top is is individual seasons and um but yeah it's fascinating that all these things change and there's fashion to it. Uh, things go in and out of vogue just like they do in any other area of our lives. You know, mm, we've mm. in my own life, I've seen bell bottoms come back twice and they weren't new when I came around. Uh, and, yeah. and it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you see, yeah. um, the, I'm thinking of these, uh, clergy shirts, uh, that, were left on a table one time while I was in seminary uh, because I don't know, somebody didn't want them anymore. They were brand new, but somebody didn't need them, I guess. And, and they, they happened to be my size, uh, but they're ones that don't really tuck oh, in. So that, so that's what happened to those sample shirts. Oh, I, Hey, they weren't, they were labeled no, I, free I'm and kidding. they, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I know. I know they were labeled free and they, uh, they, they, I can tell you they're not as sturdy as the ones that you would sell. Um, so yeah, that probably tells I you do. who, what brand they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. but they, they're ones that don't particularly tuck in necessarily. And so they're no. even whether people, whether clergy tuck in their shirt or not goes in and out of fashion, just like it does for everything else. Yeah. And, and a funny, you know, point about shirts is in the United States, Everybody calls the 
black shirt with a dog collar. It's an Anglican shirt. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, that's a, that's an Anglican shirt. You go to England and not very many people wear a black shirt with a full round collar anymore. It's all tab shirts. So it's really more of an Anglican shirt in the United States than it is an Anglican shirt in England nowadays. Right. You know, because the tr- fashion but, changed uh, in England, but it didn't particularly change in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some of the things that people consider, oh, you know, well, I want an Anglican shirt, but you know what, if you want to be true to what's going on in England, now you'd be buying a tab shirt, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, yeah. And I, I heard a fascinating story from uh, one of my professors in seminary who was sharing the history of, of the shirts. And, and if you know, uh, about fashion of the 1800s anybody listening you may know that collars were always detached uh you know you took the collar off and you cleaned the shirt and the collar was sturdier and it was built differently uh and that's precisely what clergy collars were as well and he he i and you may be able to tell me if this is uh made up or not but he said that they were the buttons were in the front actually originally uh, and then in the late in the 1800s, all the priests grew big long beards. And then when the beards came off out of fashion, the collars were turned around and the button was in the back. I, I, that may might be a practical reason for it, but uh, I mean the collar itself derived from a scarf, mm-hmm. a white scarf. You know, so uh, I mean if you look back in the in the you know even the early part of the United States, you'd see a Anglican pre- preacher. And he wasn't wearing a uh, a white collar. He was wearing a white scarf. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a, a you know kind of gathered in that, but it was more a scarf than it was a collar. A, a linen you know? wrapping, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but again, it's all signs of office. It's it's you know uh, the same with certain colors have been. Oh, whoa, that's a that's a bishop's color, you know, and 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 so you know, purple has become a symbol in in a lot of places as as being a bishop's color mm-hmm. scarlet i mean to to go back to to the cassocks and you know some of them are trimmed so that the person's position is known so for instance if i went into a cathedral mm-hmm. and i saw a a clergy person in a scarlet or a black cassock with a scarlet trim i'd ex- i'd assume he would be the dean mm. If they had a crimson cord, I would assume they're the canon. They're a canon. There, you, you you would lose me on that one. I, you know, I'm kind of fortunate I don't work in a cathedral then because I'm a little yeah. color deficient. So scarlet and yeah. crimson, uh, I, I'd have to look a lot closer. You probably catch that yeah. immediately when you walk into a. Place. Well, it's it's a difference between you know a, a what I would call a scarlet orangey red, and what I would also then crimson is more of a blood deep blood red. Gotcha. You know, but, um, you know, again, then that slipped on its head because some bishops require deans of cathedrals to wear purple cassocks Mm -hmm. or have the cassock trimmed in purple. You know, so it depends. I mean, officially, officially. Scarlet is is only uh, allowed to be worn at churches where they have a royal uh, charter. Okay. And that's like you will get some choirs and say, well, you know, uh, we want scarlet choir vestments well if you want to be really picky about it uh you know scarlet is uh, you know do you have a royal charter because you're not really supposed to be wearing scarlet right but you know 
that that you know that's gone out the window. <laughs> you yeah. know? People wear what basically what they want, and colors is you know has, have changed over the years. You know, right? So, you know. is there a particular item of liturgical wear now or in the past that stands out to you as especially? I mean, I know it. All of them are interesting, and we've talked about several oddities, but especially mm. odd or interesting, uh, more so than than the others we've been discussing. Join us next time for Trevor's response to this question and our continued conversation. Thank you all for joining us today, and I hope you'll come back for more. Don't forget to follow Episcopal Priest Explains wherever you listen to podcasts or bookmark the show website. You can join in the conversation on the official Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, or even help build the conversation out on our Discord channel. In the coming weeks, we'll be finishing up this chat, talking about religious iconography, and hearing about ministry from the native Hawaiian perspective as I complete my first field interview. And other interesting topics. I'm Kyle Martindale, and as always, all are welcome at Episcopal Priest Explains.